Yo, what is up? You have found I Like the Blazers. I am your host, Brandon Goldner, and this is the last time I promise that we're going to be bringing you this politics podcast on this feed. From now on, if you want to scope this podcast, my brother and I have been doing, it's called Remember Poly Sci. That's Remember P-O-L-I-S-C-I. You can check it out at rememberpolysci.com or search for Remember Polysci in basically any podcatcher. It's up on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, the whole deal. Um, Alex and I talk about uh, it's more election stuff. Look, I mean, we're, we got to be honest about that. Uh, we talk a little bit about how the pollings were the pollings. The polls were off for this presidential election, uh, whether or not Trump is trying to attempt a coup d'etat and a lot more. It was a ton of fun, as always. Again, remember, if you want to check out this podcast from now on, it's the last time it's going to be on this feed. Go to RememberPolySci.com, P-O-L-I-S-C-I, or search for Remember PolySci in pretty much any podcatcher. I appreciate all of you. Uh, since the NBA is coming back pretty soon, I suspect we're going to have a Blazers-related podcast in the not-too-distant future, so uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. But until then, here is what I believe is Episode 3 of Remember PolySci. Hey, I'm Alex. And I'm Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Do you remember when politics was something other than an extended rage tweet? Do you remember Polly Sai? All right. Well, welcome to Remember Polly Sai. We're back on another episode with Alex and Brandon, and we've got a whole bunch of good stuff teed up today, don't we, Brandon? Yeah, we do. We're going to talk about the election. We're going to talk about Trump, the election, Trump, and the election, and Trump, and probably the election. At some point, I do feel like we need to give like less oxygen to this stuff, but it's still just so prescient. Uh, we have to give some attention to what's going on nationally right now because the fact of the matter is it is completely unprecedented, at least in modern times. I mean, we'll, we'll get into a few examples of times in history where we've had some difficult presidential transitions. I'm looking at you, Herbert Hoover. But other than that, you know, we, we really we need to talk about this because we I want to dissect whether we want this to be the new normal or, or if we want to go back to a time when people had, you know, a modicum of respect for the process so that's where i'm hoping we'll go and speaking of the process before we get into any of that i wanted to start i kind of slipped into the show notes here i wanted to talk about the polls alex the presidential polls um so before you get to an election you have the days and weeks and months leading up to election and you have a lot of people who try to gauge public sentiment see where people are um i think it's fair to say that the polls for president specifically were off a little bit this year um maybe more so than in previous years and i wanted to tee this up and ask you a question but first let me just set the table that even though the average of many different polls in states were mostly calling the correct winner so 50 of those 50 three statewide polls because you have two districts in Maine and three districts in Nebraska. 50 of those 53 statewide polls were correct, but the national polls were off by about 4%. They gauged Biden's support at about an eight-point national lead. He's going to end up winning by about four points. And when you look at battleground states specifically, you look at kind of how far off the polls were from the actual results, and they were also off by about 4%. Some of the bigger ones, Wisconsin, the polls overestimated Biden's support by about seven points. In Ohio, they overestimated Biden's support also by seven points, by six points in Florida, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, Alex, I wanted to tr- I wanted to ask you how much 
Do you trust national polling after what happened in 2016 and again in this election? And do you care that the polls were off? I mean, is that something that that matters to you as a as someone who's interested in politics? Well, first off, I want to say that I deeply wish I could believe in the polls. I deeply wish that they could be a more reliable measure of what is actually going to happen. But the fact of the matter is, for a long time we've known this. When it's time for an election to occur, you do not know the result until the election occurs. That's just, you just have to take a step back. (laughs) You have to take a step back and accept the fact that polls are an imperfect prognosticator. And we're never going to come up with something that that's 100%, you know, on the nose every single time. So I think it, it's it's sort of a matter of, you know, you're you're trying to get an insight into what might happen in the future. Nobody has a crystal ball. And that's that's you just have to take that as a as a matter of fact before you start looking at the polls. Now, does it seem like, you know, polling data has become less reliable over time? I think it absolutely does appear to have become less reliable, and I think the reasons for that have to do with how our society is set up now. In the old days, everyone had a landline telephone. People published their numbers in the white pages. You could get a hold of people. People were apt to answer the telephone, you know, because we didn't get 5,000 calls a day. I mean, we talked about this on the last episode. How many junk calls do you get to your cell phone every day? I mean, personally, I get like five to 10 junk calls every single day. And I'm not going to sit there and answer the phone. And I'm not going to sit there and, and call back every single number that's called me. So I think it's just becoming more and more difficult to actually ascertain you know, good polling data from the population. Well, let me ask something really quick because uh, polling was actually pretty accurate during the 2018 midterm elections. And again, in this election, they did call 50 of those 53 states correctly. They said Biden was going to win. He is going to win, if not by that same margin. Is there a range or is there like a number of percentage points that would make you feel more confident? Like if 4% is too wide, would 2% do it for you? Like, is this just a matter of, like you said, that pollsters need to find different ways to get in touch with people or maybe their methodology has to weight people differently? I guess what I'm trying to ask is how accurate would the polls need to be for you to be like, yes, I can, I can pretty much trust them. Well, I'm not a statistician, so I, I don't want to, you know, sit just here and try to pontificate <laughs> on how how no, I would. Hey, you know, we're just two dudes system. talking politics. I'm just asking you what your opinion is. <laughs> I mean, I, my opinion is it's a tool, just like anything. And I think, you know, it, in some regards, in 2016, you know, Democrats were guilty of sitting back on the polls and feeling good about themselves, like they there was no more work to be done, and Hillary had this in the bag. And I think the opposite was true. In, in 2020, I think no matter what the polling data showed, you know, Democrats were were anxious, and I think rightfully so, and that was good. You know, I spoke with many people about how they felt about polls heading up to the election, and everyone I talked to who's even moderately politically active said, I don't trust the polls at all. I think that has worked it's to— probably the right attitude, right? It's worked to President Trump's advantage in some ways because he can argue that, you know, I was going to win this election no matter what. The polls are completely fake. So it sort of plays into that narrative, unfortunately. But I think, you know, we we need to just take a step back from looking at polling data and thinking that that that, that is all that there is. I think we need to go by polling data. We need to go by more local data. We need to, to figure out how we're going to allocate our resources more specifically in, in tight races. But we also have to get 
back to just bread and butter politics, knocking on doors, talking to your neighbors, doing everything you can to get people involved in the process, and maybe stop looking at the polls so much. I mean, really. I'm I'm going to cut you off right there. I'm going to cut you off right there because polling's probably not going to go away. And I wonder if maybe part of this is how that data is presented. Uh, And to that point, I want to play a brief clip from the 538 podcast where they are talking about how data from polls maybe should be displayed and presented to people to maybe impart that there is some uncertainty, some margin of error in those polls. I'm going to play this clip, Alex, and then I'm going to get your response from it. So here's the clip right here. Do you think it would be useful if polls even just listed a range instead of an actual number? That's stupid. No. <laughs> you know, people have to get used to the fact that, like, I'm tired of all this gamesmanship around like, oh, if we kind of show people, I mean, we work really hard to like contextualize information and we're aware that people can, some people learn from visualizations, some people learn from numbers, some people learn from words, some people learn from stories and narratives and examples like, let's compare this to 2016. But at some point, like, a number is a number. We can't be phobic of numbers. We just have to like understand when there's a number that's inexact. All right, Alex, let's just get your reaction. What do you think about Nate Silver's argument that no, polls shouldn't be a range, a number is a number? Like, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, in statistics in general, your data is only good as your presentation of said data. And I think that he's invested in a certain way that polls have been done, and I think he enjoys it. And I think as someone who is a number cruncher— I mean, he he understands that this is not the end all be all. I, I'm just saying broadly because one of my roles in this show, I think, is to criticize media coverage and hopefully open the doors to other ways of looking at things. I I do think the media puts heavy heavy emphasis on the polls, which encourages people to do it. I mean, whether you display it as a range or not, it is a range. I mean, that's just that's just a simple fact that that's, when that's you're thing, looking though, at polling that, data, you should understand. I will just speak for myself. When I see that number, when I see Joe Biden is leading by nine points. That nine really sticks in my mind. If it were to say Joe Biden is leading between five and 13 points, I think if that is how we took in that information, it would set us up all to understand that there is some error and that there is some uncertainty. And so in my opinion, I happen to disagree with what Nate said. I think that they ought to be displayed as a range. Um, but yeah, to your point, it really is just about how people consume them. That's all I, that's all I have on the polls. I don't know if you have anything else on polls. Well, how can, how can polls continue to be helpful going forward? I think, again, I'm just going to underscore my point that they are one in a suite of data that we should be using to make decisions You know, I I was listening to uh, the Lincoln Project podcast, and they were talking about when they made the decision to actually withdraw resources from Florida, and they were basing that on polling data, and they were really ahead of the curve. I think, you know, 538 even showed the uh, likelihood of Biden winning Florida was quite high all the way up until the election. Somehow, the Lincoln Project was looking at the same data and concluding, you know what, this is a lost cause. We're out of here. So I I think, you know, you and I, we could do more research in into how did the Lincoln Project make that assessment. And I think in general, I would just caution people to be critical of polls. It's it's maybe painting a broad picture of what may be going on. And I think if you look at the polls that way in the 2020 election, it was accurate. Joe Biden did win, right? In general, Joe Biden is a lot more popular than Donald Trump. Joe Biden is going to win by five to seven million, you know, popular votes, uh, additional votes over Donald Trump. So I think if we start to look at polls that way, and I 
think already people are doing that. They're backing off from looking at polls as gospel, and I think that's a good thing. And also to your point, polling data is more useful for those who use that data to then invest, to spend resources. It's probably less useful for the general public to understand what the state of the race is, because to your point earlier, it really comes down to who votes. We're not the ones that are strategically deciding how to spend millions of dollars. That's for strategists to decide. Yeah, exactly. I com- I completely agree with you. So let's move on to the next uh, section of the show here. And I have to sigh because I just I have been voraciously following, you know, the transition. And I don't know if most people are. I, I get the sense that some people are tuning out and just I'll see you on January 20th. I'm done with this. But um, so the Donald, <laughs> the Donald has not conceded again. He's too conceded to concede. What is his angle, Brandon? What do you think is going on here? Does he truly think he's going to pull this off? Is this some kind of a media stunt? Is he preparing for something big? I want to know what you think. Here's what I think, Alex. I think that we are witnessing an attempted coup d'etat. Okay, coup d'etat, it's a French phrase. It means blow of state. It's when someone literally tries to overthrow or take over the government, usually through violent means, but doesn't necessarily have to be violent. Uh, Someone who is undemocratically trying to either gain or retain power. I am surprised that more people are not alarmed about what's happening. And what's happening is that Donald Trump, he's not just not conceded. He has said explicitly that he won the election, even though he did not win the election. He fired a bunch of folks in the military and in other arms of the government. He's being enabled by his political party to keep repeating that he won an election that he didn't win. He's insisting that the results from the election are not valid and that he should remain in power. All of this, to me, is extremely troubling. And again, I think that lawmakers and reporters should be calling it what it is, which is an attempted coup. It's an attempt for him to stay in power. Do you have any doubt, Alex, that if Donald Trump could remain in the presidency, that he would take every opportunity to do so? Well, I think clearly he is taking every opportunity to do so. But in in honor of this conversation, before we get into the finer points, I wrote you a haiku d'etat because I wanted to. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I wanted to make you Wait, feel. Where a is bit. it? <laughs> well, you know, so you know the Japanese poetry form of haiku, which is uh, you know five syllable, seven syllable, five syllable, and usually some reference to the weather. Did you know that was part of a haiku? No, I didn't. Yeah, you have to have a reference to the weather in there. There was some other portion of it too that didn't make sense in the English language, so I, I just stuck to the main two rules of haiku. So here's my haiku d'état that I wrote for you, Brandon. <laughs> the votes have been cast, and like a winter tempest, Trump was blown away. So <laughs> the, the reason it's like the, I really it's like like the end of a Kataro is... song where it's just you get like the wind <laughs> wind chimes. <laughs> Trump lost. For all our I big Kataro fans, sorry. Trump <laughs> Literally every one of their songs ends with like a little and then like a wind noise. Yeah, exactly. Kataro is like an early 90s kind of easily easy listening. um, It's so easy to listen to. I don't know. It's like early electronica where they're like, whoa, what does this button do? And it's like. (laughs) Like two minutes. Okay, sorry. So, okay. 
Donald Trump lost the election. Okay, he lost. He lost. He lost in popular votes. He lost. He lost on the electoral college. He lost. He lost the uh, just the, the he literally war just of lost. simple decency. <laughs> He's just he just lost. He just completely lost. Okay. Now the thing that's interesting about what's going on with Donald Trump and this, you know, haiku d'etat, as I'm gonna call it. Oh my if God, you if you look at Fox News the day after all the media called the election for Biden. Fox News was going along with the storyline that they call him president-elect. They had a story on there from a conservative Christian about how the Lord selects our leaders and we're going to have to follow Biden now, and that's just part of God's plan. I'm not, I'm not kidding. That was on Fox News the night after the election was called. And what I watched happen was... People had no idea how Trump was going to react to this, except for Trump and his inner circle. Now, they've been setting up for a long time this uh, conspiracy theory that the election was going to be rigged. It goes all the way back to, remember, when he was running against Hillary Clinton, he was talking about how the election was rigged. The only reason he stopped talking about it is because he won that election, right? If you go back even further, he talked about how the election in 2012 was rigged when Obama beat Romney. He has a history of And he talked about how the election was rigged when Ted Cruz beat him in the straw poll in Iowa. When and he, he talked about how the Emmys were rigged because he didn't get one for The Apprentice. So he, <laughs> Trump literally has a history of if something doesn't go his way, and to her credit, Hillary Clinton tried to warn us about this, that he just says that it's fake. The, the difference is that now he's literally the president of the United States of America, and he's saying that he won an election that he didn't win, and Republicans are enabling him. That's a huge difference. So 20% of Americans are are willing to accept some of the tenets of the QAnon conspiracy theory that posits that Democratic, a Democratic elite like Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama drink the blood of human babies in order to live longer. So if people are willing to believe that kind of thing, it's not so far-fetched that the election could be rigged. You know, elections in general, you know, people tend to get really riled up about it. You know, you're fully invested when you're going to vote for your candidate. And if everyone you know voted for Donald Trump, everyone in your town, all you saw were Donald Trump signs everywhere. And then you find out, oh, there's something going on in, in uh, Detroit, you know. They, they, they must have stolen it. No, actually, the city of Detroit is 80% Democrat. And there's a lot more people that live there than in your small town. That's exactly what's going on. So do I think this is an attempted coup? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. Do I think Donald Trump would remain in power if he could? Yes, I think he did. Do I think he's thought about this for the last four years since he registered to run for re-election in 2016? He's been thinking about how he's going to remain in power. That is that is without question in my mind. His his team has been talking about you know the idea that state legislatures could send electors, and you know I think what they're doing with questioning the integrity of the election is attempting to stall the process enough that when on November 24th. Is, is the day you want to look for. That's the day when, when states will certify their voting results, right? That's States are going to start doing that soon. I think the uh, next few weeks I are, think it, de- it depends on the state, and some states have actually already certified at this point. Right. Yeah, a few states have, but most of the states that we're worried about, I just looked it up, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin, like big, you know, big states, and I think Pennsylvania is early December. The b- big states, these the, are the states. 
the, these are the dates that are really gonna gonna matter because if Donald Trump can figure out a way to steal this, he's gonna have to probably do it before states certify their election results. So yeah, these weeks okay. are critical. And, and I to that point, it's a really good point, Alex. You're right. It's a stalling tactic. Here's the good news for people who support our constitutional democracy over our preferred political candidate is that as of right now, Donald Trump's team is one for 20 in the courts, and that's courts ranging from Michigan to Nevada to Arizona to Georgia. The one win that the Trump campaign has had in court is about several hundred ballots in in Pennsylvania that were received a little bit after the deadline, and those votes were not even counted as of yet. So it won't make any difference to the total. I think it's important that people do understand that you're right. Like part of this is trying to sow discord and distrust in our system. There are a lot of people who believe Trump. Trump's being enabled by Republicans. I do believe it's an attempted coup. I think it's extremely dangerous. I think we're in unprecedented territory. I think we need to take it very seriously. But the good news is that it doesn't seem as though there's any legal mechanism for Trump to pull this off. And I don't have this information in front of me, but when you get down to it, Let's say they were able to stall the certification of elections in many different states. If that were to happen, there would be discussion between the Senate and the House at the federal level. If they couldn't agree on the electors to send to the to the uh, to the Electoral College, what would happen is that the House could effectively block anything from going further. And if there were no president decided by early next year, then guess who would become the president? The Speaker of the House, who is Nancy Pelosi. So basically— She would be such a great president. I mean, there would be luxury ice cream in every freezer. (laughs) So basically— I I kid, Nancy. If if we're looking at that—and that is a a Trump supporter's fever dream for that to happen. Like, I I think we should be taking this seriously. I think we should also feel good that that outcome is not likely. Even if that were to happen, the worst-case scenario would be Pelosi as president— Now, we're ignoring the fact that Trump could hypothetically get enough support in the military to actually militarily overthrow the United States government. That I don't see happening either. But I guess my point is we shouldn't be panicking, but we should be calling this what it is, which is an attempt at a coup, and it's extremely troubling. Well, that's another aspect of the term haiku haiku d'etat, coup d'etat, is that there's (laughs) usually violent. Is that related to coup d'etat? What's that? Is that related to coup de law? Are we coup de law? <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's usually it's usually a violent overthrow. This is a very interesting. Yeah, you know, like Bill Maher calls it a slow moving coup, and I think there's definitely something to that. Some of his team thinks that this will play out, and we're going to get back into some of the details of the lawsuits in a little bit. But first off, I just I just want to mention, you know, that Biden, President Elect Biden, by any measure of normalcy, is going to take on the presidency. And there is a process in place that is supposed to be now moving forward to help with that transition, and that transition is not happening. So there's there's a, an, a little-known government organization, the General Services Administration. They're supposed to sign off on a piece of paper that essentially says this is the assumed president-elect. It's based on a 
1963 law, the Presidential Transition Act, that is supposed to make this process a lot smoother. The process is called ascertainment, recognition by the federal government that an apparent winner of the president, uh, the presidency is 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 to be named and can now begin working with the federal government on that transition. And really this quick, open- you said you said apparent winner. You didn't say the definite winner. You said apparent winner, correct? Right, because the election is not set until the electors meet, right? That's that's in the Constitution. So the electors have to meet and nominate a president. So to your, thing- your, to your point, this whole process was set up explicitly for this in-between time, correct? Yeah, we've been working on presidential transitions for a long time. I mentioned Herbert Hoover and FDR. They had oh, a Herbie. very rocky presidential transition. I don't know if you know about this, but you know, Hoover, Hoover basically held on as long as he could, and that led to a 1933, I believe it's the uh, 20th Constitutional Amendment, which sets a deadline for a presidential term, and that deadline is January 20th. So whether or not Donald Trump likes it, when January 20th, 2020 rolls around, his term is over unless he can get the electors of the Electoral College to nominate him or go through one of these other processes. So I want to go back really quick to that ascertainment. What does that do when that paperwork is signed off on? It releases government resources to the incoming presidential team. Money, computer equipment, office spaces, background checks for employees. It allows the incoming pres- uh, incoming group to work with the current presidency on transitioning programs over. In other words, it helps the government run. Now, my question to you, Brandon, is do you think Donald Trump cares if the government is run smoothly? I don't think he cares at all. I don't think he cares in the least, right? It doesn't matter if it compromises our national security. It doesn't matter if it compromises the health and well-being of Americans during a spike in the deadliest pandemic we've ever seen in our lifetimes. I don't think he cares at all. No. And I'll mention that one in the 9-11 commission report, one of the reasons that they gave for the lack of intelligence that led 9-11 to occur was a stalled presidential transition between Gore and Bush, a stalled transition of 36 days. I would not be surprised if Trump stalls this transition until January 20th, just out of spite. Now, if Donald Trump cares about this country slightly and cares about his own well-being to the majority, he will most likely concede after states have certified their elections. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. That's really the unknown. I mean, Trump, you can never claim to know what his his game plan is. He's he's a, a force unto himself. But that's that's sort of the timeline that I'm looking at. And again, to your point, when you think about when you leave a job, it's always ideal to have the person who's replacing you come in, train with you for a little bit. Like you can leave a standard standard operating procedure on your desk and maybe people can pick it up and your colleagues can help you. But we're not talking about a job. We're talking about the presidency. And yeah, like this has foreign policy implications. This has national security implications. And having a smooth transition is important for everyone else who's not named Donald Trump, apparently. And I'm disappointed because when I was doing these show notes, I referenced uh, Senator James Lankford, who is a Republican of Oklahoma, who said it was last Monday or Tuesday that he will intervene if Biden isn't given access to intelligence briefings, you know, within the next by the end of the week, which was last Friday. And he he said that, you know, candidates can continue to work out their stuff in court. You know, you can do your lawsuits. You're not admitting defeat if that's what you're worried about. We're just saying that there's a good likelihood, a 
good chance that Joe Biden is going to be the incoming president and he could benefit, his team could benefit from these intelligence briefings. I'm sad to say that though James Lankford put a deadline on it of last Friday, absolutely nothing has happened. And in fact, I feel like the more the more ensconced in this idea that there's been voter fraud, the more the deeper the Republicans dive into this, the less compliant they're going to be with a transition. I saw Newt Gingrich, one of my all-time favorites. Newt Gingrich was on Fox News last night and I had to watch him because Newt Gingrich is sort of the architect of Trump-style politics, right? He's going to say whatever he needs to say as outlandish as it is to get his point across to his voters, to secure his voting block, and he does not care if it's based on reality. He does not care if he's giving the other side a fair shake. And the dude is hyperbolic, man. He's he's just, but he's he's calm. I mean, his voice is very low. He's, he's got this sort of drawl and, well, clearly it's been around. So what, what uh, Newt Gingrich said yesterday, he didn't talk about, you, you mentioned the 20 lawsuits, all of which, you know, they've had a small victory, which wouldn't impact the effect of the, the election results at Couple all. A couple hundred right? votes that haven't even been counted yet. Yeah, they, Samuel Alito already said, set those votes aside and don't count them. So they won a and, lawsuit and they were, to they not were like, count we already votes. did that when the state Supreme Court told us to do that. Right. It, so, <laughs> like, I mean, it's really not it. a win. It's not a win. It's almost like asking, like, hey, tell that guy that he has to stop at a red light. And the court's like, yeah, you have to stop at a red light. Like, <laughs> it's like I'm literally stopped right here. So so Newt Gingrich, no mention of any lawsuits. He just he just talks about all this massive voter fraud and he talks about Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia, right? Who worked with Stacey Abrams after the election was stolen for the gov- the govern the gubernatorial election was stolen from from Stacey Abrams last time. Stacey Abrams has been organizing on the ground in Georgia and worked with the governor, the Republican governor to sign a bill to rectify, you know, uh, mail-in elections that have uh, disputed signatures. And Trump is hate tweeting at Brian Kemp for this modicum of respect for voters, for 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 approving a bill that's going to allow people to amend their votes. Trump wants every vote that is not a vote for him thrown out. That's absolutely what it is. Now, I just got to end with this because Newt Gingrich said, and I have to quote him, Republicans play badminton while Democrats are playing pro football. So again, he's he's on this on this foot of we're the victims. They're so good at playing the victim. And I think voter fraud and election fraud plays right into that. We're the victims. We're the ones that are being oppressed. They're stealing the election from us. And Newt Gingrich doesn't care that, you know, 19 of 20 lawsuits have been completely thrown out. Newt Gingrich doesn't care that Trump's appointed head of election security said this was, quote, the most secure election in history, is what the guy said. Yep. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Well, it's it's also funny, like, you think about, oh, people are claiming fraud and all these irregularities, and to your point, then why haven't they shown up in any of these lawsuits in court? It's almost as if Trump is a liar who lies, who is now lying. And that's why it doesn't appear in court, (laughs) because no lawyer is going to put their name behind something or be held in contempt of court. I mean, Trump's lawyers have been asked explicitly if some of these cases that they're bringing indicate fraud. And the lawyers have to say explicitly no, because they know that it doesn't. And I I do think it's especially funny. You talked about Georgia, where they're in the third day of their recount, right? Biden won by 13,000 some votes. And the Republican Secretary of State, what's his name? Uh, Brad Raffensperger. 
he is now drawing the ire of pro-Trump Republicans, even though he himself is a Republican, simply for saying there were no major irregularities. There's no indication of widespread fraud. You know, he had been saying from the beginning, if it's close, we'll do a risk-limiting audit. We'll do a recount. We'll do a recanvas. It's again, that recount is now in day three and still no indication at all of widespread fraud or anything of that nature. It's going to be done, I think, on Wednesday. Yeah, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Let me, I, I want to go, if you're willing, back to the roots of this idea of voter fraud. And I just read there was a CNN article that Roger Stone set up a website that basically had the title Stop the Steal, right, which has become a big hashtag right now, in 20, it was like 2016 or 2017. Did you read that? I didn't. Tell me about so, it. So they, they've been working on this idea that, you know, if if we lose an election, then it was fraud. They've been working on this long before the current situation. And what really hit this, hit, hit off the most current iteration of these accusations of voter fraud was in Pennsylvania. And it, it was, it began with Rudy Giuliani and Eric Trump. And there was a big tweet that went out on Trump's Twitter, on his Twitter feed, the Twitter feeds, that said, there's going to be a big news conference at Four Seasons, you know, which sounds like the the ritzy hotel. Then he had to go back and say, oh, never mind, it's going to be Four Seasons Total Landscaping. So (laughs) they, I don't know why they planned this press conference for like this mini Home Depot, you know, Four Seasons Total Landscaping, a gardening service, which is nestled between a crematory and a sex shop. So anyway... (laughs) You know, Donald Donald Trump sends his son, Eric, Eric Trump and Rudy Giuliani. They come out. They outline all this awful voter fraud. And it's not fair because clearly Donald Trump was up. And then all of a sudden the votes come in. What are the chances that all the votes come in overnight when you're sleeping? You know, creepy stuff is happening when you're asleep. And now all of a sudden, you know, Donald Trump is losing. So so Rudy showed off his first witness of of a poll watcher, a guy named Daryl Brooks, who said that he was a poll watcher. And he said, yeah, you know, I saw some really weird stuff and I just went there because I wanted to see the polls. Well, it turns out that Daryl Brooks is a registered sex offender who served jail Uh time for fondling himself in front of two young girls. And he he's not even from Pennsylvania. He's from New Jersey, where he's run for everything from governor to tax assessor to this to that. He's a perennial candidate he's never taken seriously the dude is a total sham i mean so while they're accusing you know democrats of uh, and again i want to i want to go back a little bit how difficult would it be to pull off actual voter fraud in multiple states like that accusation is is massive right so when they come with evidence, because it's easy to say, oh, there was voter fraud, and it's easy to get upset about that if you wish that Donald Trump had won the election. But when they come with actual evidence, they haven't come forward with anything that sticks. And that's the problem, is there is still, I, I haven't seen the numbers. Um, I, I've seen ranges from 80% of people uh, accept that Joe Biden won the election, which I think that's an awful number, 80%. So 20% of people think that the election was actually stolen based on no evidence. But I've seen numbers as low as 50%. So I don't know I don't know what else we can do to get the information out. I mean, what are your ideas on that? I, at this point, it honestly, it's on Trump supporters. It's on Republicans. It's on people who support Donald Trump and wanted him to win to tell people the truth. And it does fall to people. Again, we talked about Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, who is a Republican, who explicitly said, as a Republican, I wish 
that David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, the Republicans running for Senate, had won their races and wouldn't need to go to a runoff. And I wish that Trump had won. He said that explicitly. And yet he also said at the same time, Georgia's election was secure. There's no indication of fraud. And we're going to make sure that every legal count, legal vote is counted. That's the kind of messaging that we need from all Republicans right now. So if you have people in your life, in your family, who are supporters of Donald Trump, I think it's important that you ask them, don't you support American democracy? Don't you support law and order? And those are the people that have to be speaking out. Alex, I don't think you and I can do anything about it. I don't think there's anything that, quote unquote, the mainstream media can say that hasn't already been said. It's on people who support Donald Trump to say it's clear that he didn't win the election. He's had now 13 days to bring anything, something to court that would substantiate the claims that he's making about the most widespread coordinated voter fraud the free world would ever have seen to pull this off, to your point. There's no evidence for it, and Trump lost. That's what we're going to need to see. Republicans need to stand up in this moment, and it's important that they do. But why would they? I mean, honestly, what would motivate them to want to stand up and not go along with this? They Because it's I, the right thing to do, because it's the truth, because it's damaging if they're on the record supporting someone's lies, because it's more important to support, support democracy than tyranny. I mean, those things seem pretty important to me. Well, like Roger Stone said, um, I saw Roger Stone in an interview, another guy who I think is incredibly fascinating. You know, someone asked him, what's the point of politics? Uh, what's the point of elections? And he said, the point is to win. And they said, well, what if you don't win? He says, you never give up. And if, if, if you do lose, you just go right on to the next election. That has been Donald Trump from the beginning. I mean, honestly, could you have seen Donald Trump's electoral loss ending in any other way than what we're going through right now? Is there any other way he would have lost? Not, you know? not from him, but again, it's the people around him who are supporting him and propping this up. I mean, that to me, it's the, the depth that Republicans are willing to go to capitulate to Trump and say that, yeah, the election was a sham without any evidence. I'm surprised, and maybe I shouldn't be, the number of people, the depth to which they're going to continue this lie. And again, we're, we're this is not one day or two days after the election. You, you know, it's, it's November 15. I mean, we're 13 days out at this point. It's two weeks of this. That, that surprises me. I expect it's going to keep going on. I wanted to to just basically bring up one of the court cases because I thought it was just interesting that, um, I mean, I, I think you've pointed this out already. A number of law firms representing Donald Trump in these election suits have actually left the cases because these cases are so ridiculous and so baseless. It is a it's damaging to the firm's reputation to continue to try and litigate these in court. Right. If you're a law firm with good standing that's considered prestigious and you and you basically just present utter bullshit in court, people are not going to trust you. People are not going to trust you. Oh, so so Rudy Giuliani is now in charge of everything, of course. Um, And he's good. Let's make sure his shirt is well and tucked in. (laughs) <laughs> poor guy he was just talking poor I mean, guy when i'm no. when i'm with a super young reporter who's helping me take off my microphone in the back room of a hotel the first thing i always do is reach into my pants and retuck my shirt in when i'm laying prone on the bed isn't that what you do brandon oh my lord yeah poor, <laughs> poor guy no it's uh, it's I, yeah and at the same time as anyway i just want to leave that aside that 
the Borat movie is worth watching, even if you're a hardcore <laughs> Republican. Just if you can't laugh at yourself from that movie, I don't. I mean, I, if the movie was was lampooning Democrats, I would love it just as much. That that movie is fantastic. So this was uh, one of the court cases in in uh, Pennsylvania where they were basically trying to conflate the idea that 592 ballots that were under dispute should result in throwing out hundreds of thousands of ballots. You understand that's where they're going. They're trying to get a small win and then they want to try and blow it up into something that could actually alter the results of this election. So the lawyer, and I think this lawyer is actually off the case now, the lawyer for, for Trump uh, was was litigating this and the, the court said, in your petition, which is right before me, and I've read it several times, you don't claim that any electors or the board of the county were guilty of fraud. Correct. Is that correct? And the lawyer, Jacob, what's his name? Jonathan Goldstein. He says, Your Honor, accusing people of fraud is a big step. And it is rare that I call someone a liar, and I am not calling the board of the DNC or anyone else here a liar. Everybody is coming at this with good faith. The DNC is coming at this with good faith. We're just trying to get an election done. We think these were a mistake, but we think they were a fatal mistake, and these ballots ought not to be counted. And the judge says, well, I understand. So you're ask- I'm asking you a specific question. Am I looking, and I'm looking for a specific answer, are you claiming there is any fraud in connection with these 592 disputed ballots? And the lawyer says, to my knowledge at present, no. And the judge says, are you claiming that there are any improper influence upon the elector to these 592 ballots? And the lawyer says, to my knowledge at present, no. So basically, when the lawyers are actually pressed in court, because Trump can tweet whatever right. he wants, right? That's not a legal document. When Trump tweets, there's massive fraud. But and <laughs> but if a lawyer says, there's massive fraud, and there's no evidence of it, he will be disbarred. So right. this, this, this is not a game with no losers for these lawyers, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it's like you just said, it's way different for someone to risk their legal status in court by lying than for Trump to lie without repercussion. And I think that's a super important distinction to make in all of this, right? Where you're making an extraordinary claim, election fraud, voter fraud, Joe Biden has hundreds of thousands of ballots that were not actually cast for him. Those are giant claims. And you know what they require? Evidence. And the courts have been open, right? The courts have been open since before election day, on election day, after election day. And if Trump's lawyers want to say, yes, there was fraud, and we have even the barest amount of proof, they've had every opportunity to do so. And I will say this, too. This is breaking news. Um, it's not like the hugest breaking news, but this is kind of what we're talking about. And this is this is good that it's pointing in this direction. We have a Republican from Florida, a U.S. representative, uh, representative by the name of Francis Rooney, who just published just a couple minutes ago— um, a an op-ed piece saying it's time to concede the peaceful transition of power is an American tradition. I will I will quote this Republican who says, "quote President Trump should concede the election immediately after all long shot court challenges have been disposed of. The best interests of our nation and our party demand that we acknowledge the winner of this vigorous contest." End quote. This is a Republican. From Florida in the U.S. House of Representatives, that is exactly the kind of messaging we need to be seeing right now. It's very, very important. And again, like he even kind of puts in there, well, you know, there's still still some challenges. He calls them long shot challenges. I think that's fair. You know what he's not saying? That there was widespread fraud. 
that the election was stolen from Trump. And he's saying it's time to concede. I wish more Republicans would follow in this guy's footsteps. So there's I just want to play devil's advocate on this because there's danger in doing that now that Trump has gone down this path and now that so many in the Republican Party have embraced it. If they come out and say, well, OK, you know, our, our legal challenges went nowhere. It's time for us to concede. Their support is going to fall through the floor and they have a runoff election coming up in Georgia with Two, you know, that the balance of the Senate lay, lays there in Georgia. The balance of the Senate will be dependent on this runoff election. And it's very dangerous for them to come out now. And I, I honestly wish they hadn't gone down this path at all. It's almost like they're cornering themselves. And to the point that I made earlier in the podcast that the night after the election, Fox News was not celebrating Biden's win, but at least trying to come to terms with it. They've made a 180 and they're driving in the opposite direction, right towards a cliff. So I, I don't know. I think when this happens, you know, when when the lawsuits are finally dealt with, when the electors finally meet, when it becomes clear that this long shot idea that, you know, we can subvert the will of the popular vote and have state assemblies nominate electors, when this is all gone, I think what may happen is Trump will come out and say, this election was a fraud. I'm running in 2024. And I think that's honestly the best that we can actually hope for here. Um, but you're right. I wish more people would come out and just at least say, you know, there was no evidence of fraud because there was no evidence of fraud. And it's very dangerous to be traipsing on conspiracy theories on a national level. We're becoming schizophrenic as a nation following these things down the rabbit hole. I mean, if you'll believe that, what else will you believe, right? And that's, I mean, that's what's worrying. And I, I wish that Republicans could see an out, which is, all right, so maybe we claimed fraud. We took it to the courts. There was no fraud. I mean, they could even say, hey, you know, a lot of people lied to me about what they were seeing on the ground, right? They could figure out a way to not take responsibility for the lies they've been telling, point the finger at someone else, maybe retain some shred of credibility with, you know, their base and with others, um, but again, it's like the damage being done right now, the longer this goes on, it's super, super, um, it's it's not, troubling is the wrong word. I mean, if people don't believe in our free and fair elections, then we don't really have a democracy. Like, I'm a big proponent that the social fabric is not held together by laws. It's not the fact the police could arrest you for murder. It's that we all kind of agree that murder is wrong, right? Right. And our elections are the same way. Well, I just want to say who makes Donald Trump the arbiter of of what makes a free, safe and secure election, right? Because he's argued from the beginning that the only thing that makes a safe election is if you go vote in person on a voting machine, right? That's what makes a free and safe election. Why does Donald Trump get to be the one to make that determination? And again, as someone who's sitting in Oregon where we've had mail-in voting for 30 years and and it's worked out wonderfully, right, with very little – I've never heard of any challenges to our voting system. It our, just seems our, ridiculous. Our Republican secretary of, of state has said that in the you know decades that Oregon's had mail-in voting that we have single-digit – number of confirmed cases of voter fraud. That's coming from Oregon's Republican Secretary of State. 
Uh, it's just unbelievable. So there was this quote that I wanted to read uh, from Frank LaRose, who's a Republican who is uh, serving as Ohio's Secretary of State, okay? And Ohio, of course, went red, which is fine. You know, I I never said that I, I didn't want a free and fair election myself. There are states that decided to vote for Donald Trump, and I'm, as a Democrat, 100% willing to accept that, right? Uh, his quote is, there's a great human capacity for inventing things that aren't true about elections. The conspiracy theories and rumors and all those things that run rampant, for some reason, elections breed that type of mythology. Oh, wow. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe it's the it's the question mark. It's like, you know, you, you start going down the rabbit hole of what can you trust. If you start going down, down that rabbit hole of, of worrying about whether or not you can trust elections, well— can you trust that the gasoline that you put in your car isn't tainted with lead that's going into the air and poisoning you? Can you trust that the pasta that you buy at the grocery store doesn't have levels of arsenic that's going to kill you? Can you trust the coffee shop to not put a poison in your coffee when you go get your latte on the way to work? How far do you want to take this conspiratorial thinking? That's the question. And it's it's very dangerous when, when you believe things without evidence because you lose your bearing on reality. And that's, that's what I'm saying about becoming schizophrenic as a nation, losing our touch with reality, making decisions based on gut-wrenching emotion, anger. I lost the election. I'm so angry right now. What can I say? What can I, what words can I have come out of my mouth that supports this and makes an alternative reality occur? That is what is happening. And I think we as a nation are following, are following in Donald Trump's footsteps. He, he's a mentally ill person. He cannot lose. We've known that for a long time. You made all those examples earlier of all the times he's accused the Emmy. He accused the Emmys of, of fraud, of, <laughs> Of like like the Emmys care. I mean, that is something that's so low stakes and non-consequential, inconsequential. Now we're talking about, you know, a nation, supposedly, you know, the last superpower, which, you know, that that idea is in question now that we have become so uh so unstable unto ourselves. Do other countries really look to us as a beacon of stability when we can't even, after having supposedly the most secure elections in history, we can't even decide as a nation to accept those results? Are other countries around the world really looking at the United States for hope, for democracy, when we're acting like a third world nation ourselves with a with with a tyrant at the top of the ticket questioning the outcome of a fairly conducted election? I, n- uh. No, and I think it's actually funny if you think about it, if you look at the data from this election and you look at how Donald Trump uh, did compared to some other Republicans, there's no evidence really to suggest that Donald Trump was pulling Republicans to victory. Donald Trump ran behind many of these Republicans who did uh, relatively well across the country, right? The Democrats are going to lose some seats in the House, even though they maintain a majority. The Democrats at best can have a split in the Senate after thinking that they would have a majority there. Donald Trump was not pulling Republicans to victory. So even if you're looking at this strictly from a self-preserving, self-interested point of view, if you're a Republican, I'm not sure that the calculus that they're making right now is politically expedient. In fact, this may end up hurting them later but uh yeah it's it's all of this is is super disillusioning troubling and frustrating i i hate it get me off this ride right there there were there were many voters in swing states who 
voted for Republicans for Congress, voted for Republicans for Senate, and voted for Joe Biden for the presidency, right? Now, that brings me to another interesting point that's not in our show notes, but I did want to discuss it with you because I think of of the two of us, you're the liberal wing. <laughs> We're obviously both more on the left side, but you're the liberal wing. And I want to unpack a little bit the idea that you know, far left-wing ideology brought the Democrats down in this election. I'm specifically looking at defund the police. I'm looking at, you know, Green New Deal kind of stuff. Obviously, the Republicans love to get AOC out there, who is a politician of no national significance whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, she's notable, I suppose, but, she, you know, she doesn't hold power in multiple states. She holds power in, in, in the Congress. What do you think about this idea that, you know, progressives didn't bring energy, but actually diminished the party? Well, again, there's no data to suggest that. Where that's coming from, you have moderate Democrats who fared relatively poorly in some of their races, either closely were reelected or or were voted out of office, and kind of the same as Republicans, they're looking to point the finger, and I think it's easy to say, defund the police, Green New Deal, Medicare for all, that's the reason why we lost, when there's no data to suggest that that's why they lost, and I think it's also funny uh, Bernie Sanders had a tweet the other day of the 200-odd-some elected officials who ran for office, both I think it's at the federal level and at the, it's at the state level for state legislators, of those 200-some people who explicitly said that they support Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, guess how many of them won their races? Every last one of them. Every last one of them. Now, some of that has to do with the electoral positioning that their districts were more progressive. So I'm not saying that that message is going to carry the day everywhere. But you also look at data that asks the general population, do you support Medicare for all? More than 50% of respondents say that they do. Do you support $15 an hour minimum wage? More than 50% of respondents say they do. Even in the state of Florida that Trump overperformed in, that he won by three points, the state of Florida has passed a statewide $15 an hour minimum wage. So these progressive concepts, they're popular to people. And so I think it's very, uh, again, I keep using these words, frustrating, troubling, it's annoying, frankly, when Democrats, moderate centrist Democrats say, well, those reasons, those ideals are the reason why we didn't do so well. The data does not suggest that. The data just doesn't suggest it. In fact, it suggests the opposite. I saw an interview on Axios with uh, Congressman Clay- Clyborne. Clyborne, I think his name. Yeah. Um, and he was livid about this most recent election and the the term that he kept using was we need to stop sloganeering we need to stop sloganeering and i thought about it from my perspective because you know i i consume media on the left and the right i'm sort of obsessed with going to alternative points of view and i don't think the democrats are the ones that are pushing the sloganeering i think it's actually the republicans that are repacking democratic positions into easy to hate uh, policy policy arrows, basically, like defund the police. You would be hard-pressed to find an actual politician on the national stage who supports the idea of defunding the police, right? 
Maybe they would support, you know, moving resources around. Maybe we could have more mental health specialists or addiction specialists, you know, integrated into teams with law enforcement. We could, we could, you know, have de-escalation tactics and techniques rather than simply somebody showing up and, and, and ordering someone to go here or there. Maybe we could have other resources in place. But I think you would be hard-pressed to find someone who actually agrees with the term defund the police on the national level. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're right that Democrats need to stop accepting Republicans' framing of issues. It's the same thing with saying, well, the reason why Biden lost in Florida is because he was too close to socialism that maybe Kamala Harris being on the ticket that it freaked out people because of socialism is so scary. Democrats really need to start thinking of ways that they can frame these conversations for themselves, which is why, going back to our discussion about are we witnessing an attempt at a coup? I think that is a chance for Democrats to frame this discussion about Trump's refusal to concede and Republicans' insistence on propping that up to frame it in a way that's advantageous to Democrats. Make Republicans defend that framing. Say, do you support the coup that is happening right now? Make the make Republicans feel defensive about that. I think that that's really, really important. Uh, Democrats, and you've talked about it off air quite a bit, the Democrats are really bad at coming up with slogans and catchphrases that really stick and Republicans and Trump in particular are very good at that and Democrats need to reject Republicans framing of things and I I agree with you and yeah Jim Clyburn the very influential uh, South Carolina Democrat uh, another note that during the Democratic primaries it was his endorsement of Joe Biden that influenced many voters in the South to vote for Joe Biden over Bernie Sanders and and polling that came out after suggested that literally more than half of South Carolina Democrats factored in Clyburn's endorsement of Biden uh, for their vote of Biden. So yeah, he carries a lot of power. But I, I agree. The, the framing that Republicans put up, we don't need to keep repeating that. We can come up with things for ourselves and make Republicans defend our framing. That's what needs to happen. I think one issue, and this is just sort of a broader topic too, but um, we've never lived in a time where the primary method of communication that the president uses to communicate with the public is one sentence to 10 sentences at a time in a text box, right? Like you think of presidents of old, you think of fireside chats or like, you know, a radio hour. And I went back and I I listened to one of the presidential debates between uh, JFK and Richard Nixon. And I highly recommend people do this just to get a sense of how far we have fallen. I mean, you may not like Richard Nixon, but I'll tell you what, the man is well-spoken. He has has a point of view and he explains why he believes it. You can understand his policy proposals and he has, you know, differing policy pr- proposals than the Democratic candidate. We've fallen into a trap where it's essentially a Twitter troll and whoever gets the best zinger wins. It's just, and you saw that in the first debate with Trump. It was just, there was nothing about policy there. It was just about literally being mean to your opponent. It's awful. It's not leading us down a path where we're going to be able to come together as a country under a President Biden. Or for that matter, if Trump was successful in manipulating the election system and securing a second term, he there would be even more distance between us. We're, we've really reached the point where we're caping for Dick Nixon. 
That's where we've reached <laughs> as a country. By the way, there's a, a quick story that uh, during the election, uh, Nixon and JFK, Hawaii had three electoral votes, and it was a very, very close between the two, separated by a few hundred votes. The governor of Hawaii actually certified the results showing that JFK had beat Nixon um, while they were doing the recount. Uh, the recount, uh-oh, actually switched the result for, uh, sorry, other way around, uh, <laughs> certified the results showing Nixon won, the recount showed JFK won, uh, Nixon was actually presiding in the Senate when the results were coming in, and he had to sign off on which of these two documents, both of which bore the signature of the governor of Hawaii, which of them he would certify, the one that showed that he won or the one that properly showed the JFK one. Nixon, to his credit, as much of a crooked human being and a horrible person as he was born out to be, in his power in the Senate, he certified the result that showed that his opponent, JFK, actually won that state. What do you think the chances are that Trump would ever do that today? Is it zero, zero. or less than zero? It's I, less than zero. I don't think that Trump sees the world in in that way. I don't think he he has ever been a person who considers himself to be someone who's going to play by the rules or accept the way that things are done. He's He believes himself to be incredibly exceptional. And in a lot of ways, he is. I mean, he was born incredibly wealthy <laughs> with an, an, an amazing amount of influence and power. And that has been his life. So, you know, folks like that, they, they don't see why they shouldn't be able to, you know, secure a second term, even though they lost the presidency, if they could find some, you know, obscure way to manipulate the electorate. There's, there's no reason for him to, to think like that. He's never been humbled. And that's one of the things that personally I like about Joe Biden is, he, you can tell he's a man who's been through incredible loss in his life, right? He's he lost his first wife and in a in a tragic car accident. He lost his son Bo to a battle with brain cancer. He's he has suffered loss, and so he can understand it in a way. Trump, whenever he's had loss in his life, has turned the other way as fast as he could. He's he's a germaphobe. He's someone who's afraid of that if he if he gets sick, he'll be seen as weak. He he lives more in fear of. Of, of being seen as someone with any weaknesses whatsoever, then, then he worries about, you know, doing the right thing. So I see you're holding up a cat there. Does the cat have something that she needs to say? I was hoping Zora would say something, but she is silent on this issue. I think that she agrees, though. <laughs> I just want to wrap up with one last thing. And, and I want to talk about COVID for a second, because what is going on with COVID right now is an absolute health emergency. And the solution to it is not a vaccine, which will be distributed in the next six months if we're lucky. I just want to point out that Trump, as part of this, uh, you know, attempt to to wriggle out of, of a, a legal, a legally held election, he is holding up the transition and in a lot of ways he is limiting Biden's ability to come up with a cohesive plan when he takes office in January regarding COVID. Trump had a 
a uh, news a press conference the uh, the other day last week where he touted this incredible vaccine from Pfizer which I will say does seem to show some pretty good efficacy it shows you know 90% efficacy and the way they judged that was in the group of of people who were given the vaccine it looked like none of them actually got covid they were left to do their own thing and in the group that got the placebo you know a certain number of people developed the disease so it looks like the vaccine is pretty effective there are some challenges with the vaccine. It needs to be kept. I don't know if you know this, Brandon. This vaccine, to be stable, needs to be kept at sub-zero temperatures, which means it can't go in a normal refrigerator or freezer. Pfizer is going to have to figure out an entire distribu- distribution method to move this thing around the country, right? They're developing special packaging that can keep it cold. And then after that, there's going to have to be special refrigerators or freezers that are capable of dipping down to the temperatures that are required to keep this vaccine stable. And to be clear, we we had that that technology exists. It's more getting it up to scale, right? Right. It it exists, but it's not in wide use. I mean, obviously it exists. The vaccine exists, but like no hospitals, no clinics currently have this type of technology. Uh, The distribution network isn't there. And then the other question is, how are we going to manufacture enough of this vaccine to actually make it meaningful for the population when we're already in the middle of a surge in this country and where hospitals in multiple states are approaching capacity, it's an it's an it's a national health emergency. And rather than look at this, because to look at this problem would be Trump admitting that he failed to control the virus, he's looking towards this great future when we're gonna have this vaccine. What about the people who are sick in the hospital today? What about the people who are going to get infected with this virus in the coming weeks? This this is expected to get worse over the holiday as people go indoors with poor air circulation and people have virus fatigue. You know, we've heard on the national level, you know, oh, you don't need to wear a mask. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. We're We're looking at approaching a situation where... If you get sick for whatever reason, you won't be able to find help because there simply won't be resources to deal with it. And people are burnt out. I mean, what do you think's going on in Trump's brain with this, Brandon? I just don't think that he cares. I don't think that he cares. I think he cares as much as it may look make him look good, right? He had that press conference. By the way, his first public statements in over a week, and it was about the vaccine that's coming, and then he lied about Pfizer being a part of Operation Warp Speed, which had nothing to do with the research and development of this vaccine and has everything to do with the future distribution of it. So, you know, he just can't stop lying. Um, Well, he has to take credit for it. I think he even went so far as to say, it was me. (laughs) Yeah, it's. I I don't think that he cares. And the thing that's, again, super, you know, you run out of words to describe this stuff. It's so serious, frustrating, disappointing. is that this has become a political issue when it really should be a public health issue. We see here in Oregon, the chair of the Clackamas County Commission, Tootie Smith, went on social media to say, I'm not going to listen to Governor Kate Brown's stay-at-home order. I'm going to find as many family members and friends as I can and have them all over for Thanksgiving. And it's like, Tootie, you're part of this vulnerable population. <laughs> Where if you contract, Tootie, I said, Tootie. I said, I said, Toots, Toots, Magoots. <laughs> if you contract this disease, you could very well be maimed or killed. This is not. I mean, do you see photos of people in large gatherings giving a middle finger to the Democratic governors who want to stomp on their freedoms? You have the Supreme Court Justice Alito saying this is an 
amazing overextension of the government's rights to squash people's personal liberties. No, this is an emergency. This is a this is a worldwide pandemic for an incurable disease, the likes of which we have never seen. I don't think that Trump cares. And it's 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 troublesome. I mean, uh, you talk to people who work uh, in healthcare. Talk to yourself, Alex, who works in healthcare. There are hospitals whose intensive care units. Uh, some big hospitals have specific. Uh, intensive care units, ICUs, specific ICUs for um, specific populations, they're now having to lump everything together and say, no, we're going to set all of these aside just for COVID patients. It's the same stuff that we saw happening earlier this year, and it's happening again. It's troubling. It's super, super troubling. It's such a fitting for the end of Donald Trump's uh, presidency. It's so fitting for him to go out with just the walls, you know, the paint's peeling off the walls and things are just crumbling around him as he walks out. It's it's very sad. But, you know, when it comes to politics, Brandon and I, we see things a little differently. Here on our podcast, we like to display both sides of the left. The Alex left and the Brandon left. <laughs> And we've reached that time when it's 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 almost time to say goodbye. But Brandon, do you have any last closing thoughts? I just I I want people to really think about this time and to think about what they can do to combat things that are simply not true. Whether it's within yourself, we had talked about in one of our first episodes, admitting when you are wrong and how important that is. Whether it's having conversations with family members to get them to think critically about things. If you're going to be having a Thanksgiving, and hopefully you're not coming together in large groups, but if you absolutely have to, if you're hopefully outside with a small number of people, to challenge people in your inner circle about their thinking and why they believe what they believe, we need more of that. And it's important for you to show that as well. So my closing thought would be in this age of misinformation and disinformation and lies without any evidence, do what you can in small ways to combat that because it's super important. And I would also add, do not get your news from one news source. Do not simply read things that already agree with your preconceived notions of what's going on. Challenge yourself. If you really enjoy Breitbart, as I do... Then take yourself over to NPR and see what they have to say, you know, on on another with another point of view. Go to CNN, even though it sucks and Trump says that it sucks. Go see what they have to say. If you really enjoy Fox News, you know, go go check out MSNBC as well. Put yourself in a position where you're absorbing multiple viewpoints so that you can have a more complete understanding of what is, what is going on. Each side has their story to tell, and somewhere in there is the truth. And I think if you absorb information that way, it's more likely that you'll come across to other folks as someone who really cares and understands their point of view, and that is what we need going forward, wouldn't you say, Brandon? I would say, Alex. Just admit when you're wrong. It's not hard. No one's going to be right 100% of the time, and your preferred candidate is not going to be right 100% time. 100% of the time. People are wrong sometimes. That's okay. Admit it. Just admit it. Wait, is that how we're ending? I want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, remember to go to rememberpolysci.com. We are now on our own feed, whether it's on CastBox, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
at iHeartRadio. It doesn't matter how you get your podcast. Look for Remember Poli Sci. This is probably the last time we're going to be running it on the I Like the Blazers feed concurrently. Until next time, I'm Brandon. Alex with the music. I'm Appreci- Alex. <laughs> Appreciate you all. Thank you. Bye.